again, and welcome to another episode of Human Rights Magazine. In this episode, Emma Belluni explores the impact of the economic sanctions placed on Syria in June 2020, in particular the impact on women and girls. These sanctions are meant to punish the regime for its actions during the civil war, which began just over 10 years ago, but they are having a devastating effect on the Syrian people. In an effort to hold Syria's government accountable for its crimes against civilians, the U.S. imposed strong economic sanctions on the country in 2019. Yet, those most affected are not the political leaders and the elite of the country, but those who were already vulnerable. To understand the way that the sanctions have been impacting women, I interviewed three women's rights activists. I first spoke with Lina Abirafe, who is the executive director of the Arab Institute for Women at the American University of Beirut. She has been working extensively on gender-based violence prevention, both in development and humanitarian context for over 20 years. She started out by explaining what the sanctions mean for women. Well, what happens with sanctions, you know, it's a reprimand. It's a tap on the hand. It is part of the global policy toolkit to discipline other countries. It is, you know, like being grounded. It's a very similar kind of approach. But is that really the best way to understand, to learn, to instigate change? Not necessarily, because what happens is it impacts the most vulnerable of the population, is the poorest who suffer the most when sanctions are in place. You know, economic sanctions are a major weapon. And the people who are already poor, vulnerable, marginalized, women and girls, anyone from minority communities, refugees and the internally displaced, whoever happens to be in the country within the borders that is already treated as less than will suffer, will feel the impact of this and will bear the brunt of this in a way that is much more serious. So when it comes to women, you know, I think that's really the question and that's really my concern. I then spoke with Noah and Kimsha. She is a governance and development advisor at Vital Voices, a Washington, D.C.-based NGO working on women's empowerment. There's a historical context behind sanctions on Syria since 1979. And then it was renewed after 9-11. And then once again, it was renewed during the Iraq war. The very major sanctions that was recently imposed, I think that was two years ago, was the Caesar sanctions just considered to be the most brutal sanctions on civilians particularly. But previously, all of the sanctions, they weren't as effective on the government or the regime per se, as much as it was necessarily harming businesses, local and small businesses inside the country. But basically what the recent sanctions have been doing, they supposedly target the Syrian government personnel, like freezing the Syrian central bank's assets and targeting repressive apparatus of the regime, as well as targeting certain sectors of those who are doing a lot of like big businesses with the Assad family, particularly. When the Caesar sanctions were imposed, there was a little by the U.S. Um, Treasury that was, you know, published on who they are targeting particularly. And they were all individuals who are making profits, A, off of the black market in Syria due to the previous sanctions, B, those who are affiliated with the Assad regime and the families, and basically trying to dry up revenue sources that could exert powerful pressure on the regime and do serious harm. The way they are implemented is by tightening the economic grip on the country, forbidding all Syrian, like 
receiving all goods and services that could benefit the, the country. Syria in it itself is a resourceful country. There is a lot of natural human resources that could basically contribute to the overall economy. But with the way the country is divided right now into four or five different territories, it has been very hard to collectively use the resources for the, for the sake of the citizens. Are these sanctions effective? No, they're not. Unfortunately, there is a slight damage that was done on those personnel, but it's very, very minimum. Most of these persons, they have bank accounts throughout the globe, different names, different forms, different shapes. For example, like sanctioning Mohammed Hamsha's sister who's living in Dubai or in Qatar, who, you know, they're not going to be affected by those sanctions. They have their money with them. But unfortunately, the economic crisis are affecting citizens on a daily basis in every meaning of the word. You know, there's no access to basic needs, no access to food. We are headed, if not already hit famine, that is going to be worse than what is happening in Yemen right now. But it, it's not necessarily affecting the regime particularly or the personnel that were sanctioned previously. You know, it had a worse impact on Syrian citizens inside the country living inside Damascus right now. I wouldn't say that sanctions have been effective at all. What happens is when people lose lives, livelihoods, stability, social safety nets, anything on which they anchor in any times of insecurity or crisis or disaster or whatever it is, I've seen it in now 20 five different humanitarian emergencies, unfortunately, women and girls bear the brunt because violence against women increases. Now, intimate partner violence is the most common. It's the best hidden. It's the most likely. And that's true globally. And we see that everywhere. You know, we see that in a time of crisis, like even here in the U.S. after Hurricane Katrina, for instance, a time of massive insecurity and displacement and people lost their homes and livelihoods and whatever Intimate partner violence increased. So will we see an increase in sexual violence? Absolutely. Trafficking and forced prostitution? For sure. Transactional sex? Definitely. Intimate partner violence in the, the immediate term and in the long term. And then also for girls specifically, being taken out of school and denied opportunities. Different forms of economic violence, for instance, that women will face, being restricted in terms of of access to money, even money they make, even money they have a right to make, or being forced into making money in ways that are dangerous and risky and put themselves um, at, at, in the face of very serious harm. So girls married much younger, sometimes sold off. You know, These are all things that we see over and over in every single country, and we'll see it again now. In every country where sanctions are put in place, it punishes the people who are already victims, if you will. For me, that is a measure of least resort. And it is a measure that, from a humanitarian perspective, ends up being uh, quite irresponsible. You know, I keep saying for women and girls, the emergency is just beginning, even when we think that we are done and we can look away. Because the long-term impacts on their health and well-being, on their um, access to economic opportunities, on their participation in any kind of public or political life, on their mobility, on their freedom, on their choice, on their voice, and on violence against women, which is the most deleterious impact, are huge and continue for years, even after sanctions are lifted. I mean, we are talking about a protracted crisis that has lasted 
far too long. You know, how long have we been dealing with the Syria crisis? And do we see any end in sight? You know, we certainly don't. We're talking about a mass movement of population. We are talking about extremely vulnerable people. We're talking about a world that has, for the most part, shrugged their shoulders and looked away. And we have too many other crises to manage. And now in the throes of the COVID pandemic as well, and we're not even in the post-COVID era still, the idea that this continues and is compounded and we are not paying enough attention to what is going on, you know, absolutely We've forgotten how much women are already suffering and with implementation of sanctions that is going to get much, much worse. It will take a generation for that population to to recover, to regain any sense of normalcy. I then spoke with Maria El Abde. She is the executive director of Women Now for Development, an NGO based in Paris. She talked about the financial consequences of the sanctions on the humanitarian sector and on organizations like hers. On daily life, I think the main issue will be the bank overcompliance. If you have the name Syria in any bank transaction or you are a Syrian national, the transaction could be uh, impacted, could be deleted, your bank account would be closed sometimes. So it affects even Syrian outside the country. So let's start by this. Then if we want to speak about people inside the country, first, we can't deal with any bank inside Syria and there is very few and all of them are controlled for the regime. So I'm not calling to deal with the bank inside Syria, but that means that all the money transferred to Syria need to be done in cash. So if you are talking about a huge uh, humanitarian aid, you, you are using systems could be not really trustful sometimes and very complicated. Again, we know that uh, a lot of companies are afraid of being seen as going against the sanction. So they decide to stop working with Syria. So we are more and more depending on Russian and China economy, for example, which is very problematic. And for us as feminist organization, we have another complication with the situation in Lebanon and Turkey. Some banks today refuse to transfer money to Lebanon and to Turkey. To Lebanon because of uh, all the um, transparency issues from France, at least. Uh, to send money to Lebanon and Turkey. So already we can send money to inside Syria. We were doing this through neighboring country. So now even neighboring country, we are not allowed to send the money there. So it's all caused a lot of problems and uh, difficulties. And when we come to the women activisms, our, our budget is very small in comparison with the big humanitarian organization. No one will really care we are not uh, a big client. We are not discussing millions. Sometimes you know, the woman initiative inside Syria, they run for you know, $2,000 $2, will be enough for a certain amount of months, for three months, for example, a year of, uh, of activity sometimes for a small project, $10,000. So it's not an amount that is attractive you know, for negotiation to allow us to do things. The Syrian regime, like every dictator, he will put every mistake or everything that are going bad, or even they will do bad things and then put it on the sanction. So if there is no break, they will say it's because of the sanctions, you know? So people cannot really understand what is the real impact of the sanction. It's difficult for me to say what is real sanction, what is overcompliance from company and bank, and what is the regime using the sanction 
to convince people about how bad the sanctions are or to put this mistake on the other sanctions. Indeed, the issue for women goes beyond the sanctions in themselves, and it lies in the social, economic, and political context of Syria. Especially in, in countries like, like Syria, where previously we did not have civil society organizations that primarily defended the women's rights. But I wouldn't tie that to the sanctions, particularly because there were already, before the, the sanctions or the Caesar Act have been imposed on Syria, we were seeing this kind of socioeconomic dynamics play a role in women's lives, like those who have been, for example, detained by the Syrian government and then released, but they were victims of rape inside the detention center. The main link to what is happening to women or even survivors of other gender identities is really the war context and the traditional form of how gender inequality has been in the country since Hafez al-Assad was in power, really. For me, as someone who's been working on Syria, knowing the each, like each of the territory's contacts, I don't think... As much as I hate sanctions, I don't think shedding the lights should be particularly on the sanctions as much as the black market and how the regime has been taking advantage of the sanctions to their own sake and profit. They turned Syria into a narcotic state for the past, what, we've started to hear about it like three or four years ago, but I, I think it was way before when the uprising had started. I don't believe that the sanctions have been effective enough. They have tightened a little bit the grip on the regime, but the regime is still functioning. They're doing whatever they want. They're still detaining people. There's still no release of prisoners. In those kinds of contexts where even on a good day, even when things are stable, there are hardly any systems and services and support. There isn't enough legislation to protect women. And even if there is, it's incomplete, it's un unapplied, it's ignored. You know, people don't much care about those kinds of things. They dismiss them very easily, especially when it comes to something, for instance, like intimate partner violence that people view as within the purview of the family and it's private. And, you know, even when there are laws in place, they fail to adequately protect women. And then when they do, they often make things worse. So the risks end up being greater than the, than the benefits for women and girls. So that's part of it. The other part is a lack of adequate places to report. And even if you can report, if there's no benefit to you in reporting, if you're not going to be protected, if you're not going to have access to services, if you're not going to have healthcare and psychosocial support, security and access to justice, which is always the weakest link, you know, what is the point of reporting? If you're not going to have some kind of support, protection, a safe house, a shelter, and people tend to not want those things or not use those things, even when they do exist, they can't access them. There's a lot of shame and blame around that. There's cultural stigma. Uh, women risk being further ostracized. They risk losing their children if they try and, and seek support or get protection or find a, a shelter. So there is a lot at stake. So very often in such situations, women are just forced to, to endure the violence and tolerate it. And even when they know that it is a crime, they have no choice because the, the costs of it far outweigh any perceived benefits of leaving or seeking shelter and safety or protecting themselves. So we really put them in a, in a situation where they are well and truly stuck. 
So NGOs that support, that are working in communities, local women's organizations, all of these that are usually the first point of entry are the first to be cut. Things like community health programs, all that stuff is cut. Anything that is on the so-called softer side tends to generally be cut when countries are dealing with the, the economic impact of sanctions. They're basically reducing their lives and their existence to what is necessary. And those things are never deemed to be necessary, even if they are, even if they are life-saving, even if they are critical, they are not viewed as important. And so those are the first to be cut and the last to be revived, which is dangerous because all of these local organizations are the ones set up by women, many of whom were galvanized into action because they're survivors themselves. And that tends to be one entry point. Uh, into doing this work. So these community groups, these grassroots groups, women's groups, frontline feminist groups, they're the ones who are working miracles on scraps. You know, they already are underfunded and uh, under-resourced and uh, are staffed with hardly any at all. So you can imagine then when any source of funding that's already scammed is cut and they have to shut down completely, you know, they're a lifeline for women in their community and there's absolutely nowhere to go. And these organizations take a very long time to come back. And even the, the bigger NGOs, even international NGOs, others, the working environment becomes that much harder and much more restricted. People are focused on basic needs. And so the priorities shift and it becomes even harder to get funding for things like prevention and response to violence against women. We then talked about the future and what lies ahead for Syrian women. I think right now women are fighting for their survival, you know, so I, I think it's a question of existence day to day. And what does their responsibility say of the international community or you know, humanitarian agencies to also provide support as a buffer? You know, it's uh, fr from the humanitarian frontline that's exhausting, continuing to rectify the damage it's created by international sanctions and other global forms of reprimand. Uh, so that you know, becomes a great challenge. But, you know, really now it's a question of survival how to keep women safe, how to keep them from having to resort to risky measures of survival, how to help them to access any economic opportunity, to generate an income in a way that is safe and secure for them, that will make them hopefully less likely to put themselves at risk, less likely to marry off uh, their daughters, less likely to pull their daughters out of school. You know, these things will have generational impacts. So right now, it's a question of that, getting money into the hands of the women who will uh, use it to protect themselves and their daughters. And that's what we need. Noah Al-Kamsha has been working extensively with women civil society in Syria, and she highlighted the role that women play into the social and political reconstruction of the country. Because eventually, right now, the country is divided, and it may be divided for a very long time to come. However, What civil so Syrian civil society try to do is to prepare for the next, for the future, to keep that collective vision and dialogue ongoing. There is a huge rise of Syrian civil society post, post 2011. They constantly mobilize collective actions and they, they try to, you know, identify how communications tools could support their movements in general. So women organizations particularly They take initiatives and they do a lot of consultations with different various civil society actors outside of Syria or inside of Syria even to constantly keep that in-depth dialogue 
uh, between such groups. It makes me very pleasantly surprised that it is an initiative that is constantly led by women, by women's organizations or feminist organizations in the country. There is a huge transformative impact that grassroots and feminist organizations have had in Syria. There are also indications that women-led organizations, they attain a lot of resources and they undergo a lot of training and capacity building on good governance and democracy concepts. And they integrated within communities that they are serving in preparation for that next phase that we we don't know what might look like. Most likely it will remain divided until we figure out what's going on with Russia and China as the new powers taking over the world. Thank you for listening to this episode of Human Rights Magazine. The podcast is brought to you by the Upstream Journal. I invite you to consider supporting the program and the magazine with a contribution through PayPal as you explore other episodes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Human Rights Magazine. The podcast is brought to you by the Upstream Journal. I invite you to consider supporting the program and the magazine with a contribution through PayPal as you explore other episodes.